0: Today's episode is sponsored by Liberty Language Services and its new sister company, the Academy of Interpretation, that launched in early 2022. The Academy of Interpretation is an online education and learning platform for the language services industry. The AOI's mission is to expand access to educational courses while establishing a standard of quality and professionalism. They do this by bringing language service providers, content creators, and students together on an online platform that's accessible to everyone. The Academy of Interpretation was founded to address the widespread problem of untrained interpreters working in the field. The AOI offers professional accredited courses for interpreters and serves as a platform for organizations to refer their interpreters for training. The AOI is offering Brand the Interpreter listeners a 10% discount on all courses using the discount code AOI10BTI this code cannot be combined with any other discounts. But check out the episode show notes for more information about the Academy of Interpretation or visit their website at www.academyofinterpretation.com. Liberty Language Services is a rapidly growing language service company that recently celebrated 11 years of providing language access services. And they are currently hiring freelance interpreters for a variety of languages. To find out more about Liberty or to apply, Check out the episode notes. Welcome back, language professionals from around the world, to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is Mireya, your host. And as always, I am so grateful that you're joining me today. Just a quick note, if you missed this week's live podcast, in which I interviewed two students and a professor sounds like the title of a novela, except in Spanish, it sounds a bit more dramatic. Dos estudiantes y una profesora. See, I told you. Anyway, if you missed the live, not to worry. Its episode will be published in the coming weeks. You won't want to miss it. It was a great discussion, if I do say so myself. All right, and now, on with the show. Nadia Mateo is a Spanish medical interpreter certified by NBCMI and CCHI, and is currently in the process of obtaining her DPSI medical certification in the UK. Since 2018, she's been working as a VRI OPI medical and educational interpreter, as well as a quality assurance agent. She is a trainer specializing in memory retention, note-taking, and remote interpretation, She has created over 400 symbols for her interpretation algorithm, which she has published in her online symbols glossary. In 2020, she created an online learning community called Interpremed to make high-quality study materials available to professional and aspiring medical interpreters across the world. So, without further ado, here's Nangi Mateo. Nanyi, welcome to the show. So glad to have you. Hello. Hi,
1: Mireya. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. I think today's topic, I feel, is uh, going to be eye-opening and potentially a bit uh, controversial. So there's a lot to talk about today. And uh, I'm just I'm just happy that you're here and that you are willing to share your story. So how about we get started? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yes. Let's begin with uh, your beginning. If you would be so kind as to share with us where you grew up and what is a fond childhood memory of yours.
1: Okay, so I grew up in Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. Um, I've lived uh, my whole life in the Dominican Republic and um, a fond memory of mine was growing up I used to spend a lot of time outside playing with my neighbors, so we would play um, different types of games. It was a very, we were a group of five, seven kids, and we were very close friends, and I remember that time of my life as being the the happiest time of my life, just being a kid, playing, um, being in, in, in nature, being with other kids. That's a good memory.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's always great memories because we don't get to do that as much anymore. <laughs> we grow up mm-hmm. and no more play, right? At least it doesn't feel like it. Did you grow up in a bilingual home? Um, no, my par both of my
1: parents are Dominican. My whole family is Dominican. Um, I have, I have many family members living in the United States, but that's like, different and I I learn English mostly in high school there had they have a bilingual program and also my mom put me in English classes very early on when I was about 10 years old like she knew that English was going to be the next big thing in the Dominican Republic so she signed me up to some English classes smart
0: mom. What did you what did you think when you were going through English classes at such a young age? Because not everyone necessarily maybe around you was also learning English. So it's like, okay, you go to class and you use it. And were you thinking, am I ever going to need this? Or what were your thoughts?
1: Well, my thoughts were my mom was always saying like, English is important. You have to learn English. My mom was really all about education. She Mm -hmm. invested a lot of time, money and effort in her education. And so I was like, "Okay, okay, mom, I guess you're right. But I didn't particularly enjoy the English classes. And I think it was more about the school than in English itself, because Mm -hmm. of the people I was around with and the teachers, it was like, oh such a chore every Saturday going to English class when I was supposed to be resting. Right.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And you're supposed to be outside playing with your friends. (laughs) Yeah. And so I, I learned, uh, I watch a lot
1: of movies like Disney channel and, and cartoon network and Nickelodeon. And I was always watching TV, singing songs, karaoke in English. So I grew up with the mainstream um, media in, in English so mm. that's how I I actually think that I learned more from that like uh, hobbies that I was doing in English than the actual English classes so
0: that's funny I think I've heard that before too somebody else yeah. uh, mentioning about they learned a lot about the American culture and mm-hmm. thus you know the English language uh, through watching television so that Television is not all that bad, (laughs) especially now with technology, not all that bad. Do you remember what you aspired for professionally as a child, Nangi? Did you think about that at a later age? Did you think about that at a young age?
1: Well, I went through many like phases, right? Uh, First, I wanted to be a veterinarian and then I wanted to be a doctor. Then I wanted to be a psychologist And then I wanted to be an engineer because in Latin America, you have to study something to pay your bills, not what you really like. And so I I really, I loved animals. So I wanted to be like a a veterinarian doctor. Uh, That's how my interest in professions got started. But then I went through college and I changed majors quite a lot until I found Uh, what I really enjoyed. So I've really, as professionally, aspired to be many, many things until I I settled down with interpretation, which is kind of a long story.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about it then. How about that? Because so you're, the university that you attended happened to have that program? Or did you end up having to search and piece together training?
1: Yeah, Yeah, so college was, I had to kind of Piece together training, but uh, it all started. Um, I think this is an interesting story, at least so. So I've heard. Uh, to me, it's a bit embarrassing, actually. But I first started uh, college studying chemical engineering. Then I changed to archi- architecture. I studied architecture for two years. Didn't finish it. I didn't like the the not do not sleep culture. I don't like that. And then I moved to like tourism. Um, and, and languages and also interior design. And then I decided that university in the Dominican Republic wasn't for me because our education system here, um, it's, it's very difficult to just get a ma- majored in something, especially in a public university. So I struggled a lot with that. And I, I decided that I wanted to follow my dream of traveling around the world And then I was working with a company as a language operator assisting interpreters. And that's how I came across interpretation for the first time. And I just said, like, oh, I can work remotely and I can also travel at the same time. So I can fulfill my dream of traveling. And that's how I started studying interpretation on my own with lots of practice materials. I I bought so many books, watched so many webinars, attended my 40 hour course. I was like, I need this for my dream of traveling right that's my purpose and so as i studied more and more and more i realized wow this is really interesting i really love this um it became a passion for me without really looking for a passion in a job because i wanted to travel and i i cur- i'm currently in the open university i decided to major um in linguistics um, well English and philosophy because that's what's more um, aligned with my current job uh, as as an interpreter and trainer and um, I'm studying remotely so I'm really happy with what I'm doing now I feel like I'm finally going going to finish a major that I feel is um, meaningful for me so.
0: And that's important you know I think that we we often tend to especially when we're so young that we're forced to choose something without yet being quite clear what we want. So it ended up working out, just great, I think, because now you you are sure, like you say, and it's something meaningful. Meaningful, and so uh, you're you're going in that in that direction. Now, you mentioned briefly that you were working with a company uh, assisting interpreters. What was it about it that opened your eyes and 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 piqued your curiosity about maybe going into that profession? Did you know at that point that interpreting was a profession?
1: Um, I was thinking it was more like a job, like something like, you see, you are a customer service representative, you're a language operator, and then you are an interpreter, like a job title, a job position. More, It, it was not a profession like a doctor or a teacher or an engineer. I wouldn't see in that way. It was a job that was conducive to me achieving my travel dream. And um, I heard, inter- because I will help them place uh, their third party dial-outs remotely and I will listen sometimes to them and they will be talking to patients like all sorts of patients young um, uh, seniors and in all types of situations um, I mean labor and delivery or I felt like I started to romanticize what they were doing uh, because and, and also of course I was the, the the financial aspects of it was really interesting because I'll Medical interpreters are paid more than what I'm currently working, and so I was like, okay, it was interesting because you were you listen to so many stories from so many people, so many backgrounds. It was challenging because it required very specific skills. So it was like a personal challenge. I can prove myself that I can do it, Um, and also the financial part of it. So it was like a combination of different things.
0: Did you attempt while you were in this company to interpret or when did your first interpreting encounter occur?
1: Oh, yes, I attempted to uh, and up and I applied several times, but they never um, hired me. Um, And I was like, why? But I ended up uh, working for a call center here in the Dominican Republic. And it was for um, for for it was mainly social services and primary care. Not not a specialized medicine. Um, I acquired some experience with them, and then I started to work with a different company. And there, there they they are like these in, intermediary agencies between major agencies in the US. Um, like we all know them, like a Voice Global, they, like these the, the top ten agencies. Mm-hmm. That and then the the uh, independent agencies here connect with them, give them. Uh, contracts and then these independent agencies hire interpreters locally so Mm -hmm. that's how I got um, a different job Um, and then I started to um, I worked there for a couple of years I applied to different several agencies looking to like increase my my salary because it was very low at that time Um, and then like I, I It's a very long story, so I want to break it up in manageable parts. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. I I think that that's really what we want to get at in this conversation is just how you got into the profession, because Mm -hmm. you know, people, particularly if they're if they are not familiar with how to get started, if they are uh, outside of the U.S. and are looking into some inspiration or even begin how to begin, I should say. And I think that's why, you know, our stories are so important to be able to share. So um, it it just sounds like you were doing a lot of behind the scenes research, a lot of work and just, you know, navigating your own way, your own path through identifying what potential resources were out there and identifying what you can bring to the table and how you can connect all of that. What stood out? When you were doing your research, where you were trying to train yourself, when you were collecting all these different resources that are out there, what stood out for you? Was there a positive or a negative in that experience?
1: Well, something that stood out for me is that um, I was trying to uh, practice as much as possible with materials, and it was really hard to find materials, scripts, and recordings and just somebody to practice with and give you feedback that that was like uh, something that stood out for me and and that's why I decided to create Interpremed which is um, a platform that I wish I had available when I was training uh, when studying for to develop my own interpreting skills so there was not and something else that stood out as well was the note-taking part and the memory retention part um, educational and courses? Whenever you will attend a course or read a book, I felt like the then how to develop your memory and note-taking was very vague, very brief. More like, oh, you have to do what you feel most comfortable doing, and I'm like. Well, that's that's not really helpful because I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> and and so I need some I need you to give me like clear steps and guidelines. And um, then I found a uh, Virginia Valencia's book and and webinar in YouTube, and her symbol system. I was like, oh, this is oh so interesting. This is exactly what I was looking for. Something specific, concrete that I can practice and apply, and I can use it to improve my memory, which was very challenging back then. And so I, I started to use our note-taking system, but I also started to, I, I got obsessed with creating symbols. And so I, and i this is when I think my architectural background comes into play because I learned how to think creatively and abstract uh, shapes and forms and create little icons. And so I ended up creating more, like over 400 symbols. And I ended up, Understanding like the steps of memory retention, and I realized like, oh, this is something that I think I accidentally created a language, a note-taking language. I was like, I have over four hundred symbols. I know exactly what I'm doing at each and every step, and this is not information that is available out there. I kind of did it to trial and error and a lot of research, and and it's funny because it happened accidentally and now I've taught it I taught my system to a lot of people and they say it's helpful they like it and I'm actually in the process of creating some some a really long course on my symbol note taking and um, that's something that stood out for me and and I kind of came up with my own solution that I want to share with other uh, remote interpreters
0: yeah. And we'll get into what you created in the long run in, in in just a bit. For now, I'd like to return to the topic of, of your remote interpreting and offshoring. And because today's topic is multifaceted, as, as we just you know, came across with the ideas that have sprung up with your experiences, I'd like to get into the fact that you are a certified medical interpreter both with MBCMI as well as CCHI correct?
1: Um, Yes that's right I first got my certification with MBCMI uh, because that was the only one that allowed me to get certified remotely without having to travel to the U.S. Um, It was was not affordable for me to travel to the U.S. when I got it Um, and so then I got my CCHI and I traveled and I decided to get that second certification because over time um, after, you know, going through several agencies and creating this note-taking and this interpremed, I, I, I became a trainer too. And I was training people who were going to take the CCHI and the NBCMI exam. And I wanted to be able to go through the CCHI exam myself to give them concrete advice and, and about the CCHI exam which is different to nbcmi and it was also for me um a way to prove myself like oh i can do it again i can get certified and i am the kind of person who i always like to be improving myself um and becoming a better like better note taker better, better memory. Better everything. And I think as interpreters, we are very hard on ourselves and our performance. And when you have a, a credential, it really boosts your confidence. It makes you feel good about your skills. And at the same time, um, as a remote interpreter who is outside of the US, I feel like I have to work twice as harder um, because people and agencies and clients. Always want to offer me lower rates and just and 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 I have to prove myself. Like, look, I'm not your average interpreter. I hold two certifications. Um, I'm very valuable, and this is what I deserve because of my knowledge. And I'm also in the process of getting my DPSI certification in the UK. I actually have my exam um, in June 21st. So um, that's a five-part exam. And I passed the first one with uh, the translation exam into Spanish with a married grade. So I'm very proud of that. And then I want to get my new, um, my certification in Australia and New Zealand. And they're kind of together. I haven't um, researched a lot about it, but I want to get that because I'm catching. I always say this joke. I like to catch all certifications as if they were Pokemons, <laughs> like that. to catch them all uh, because it, it makes a point, like, unvaluable. Um, it connects me with interpreters and associations worldwide, not only in the U.S. So it expands my, my uh, job opportunities, I, I hope, um, and people I can connect with. And it also proves that I, I believe there is an issue that people don't see interpreters as, as professionals. They just see them, like, as, as helpers who are doing this kind of, a side job or gig or they don't see them as true professionals and that it makes a point like look i have this many certifications then you think that doesn't that tell you something about interpretation mm-hmm.
0: so yeah, yeah that there's even uh the assessments out there for I- interpretation and and mm-hmm. you as an individual holds as many as you hold share with us Nangyi how from the Dominican Republic you begin your journey as a professional interpreter, because you said you know, the, the, the resources really needed to be found. You really needed to dig into, it sounds like the resources that you found were from abroad, um, not local resources. And so share with, with us how you begin this professional journey from abroad.
1: Yeah. So here in the Dominican Republic, there are no interpreting schools. Um, there are no translation schools. You don't. You cannot just go to college or university and get a BA in interpretation. It's not a thing. So that was uh, as soon as I realized that I. I thought to myself, okay, well, I have to find something online because that's my only option. And so I. I knew that to get this the to pass the certification exam or sit for the exams, I had to take a forty-hour interpreting course. So that was my starting point. That's where I started. I got my forty hours, and I was working at the same time. But as an like avid learner, I, I kept uh, uh doing CU courses, doing a lot of practice for myself. Like I was practicing about four hours every day. I would wake up very early in the morning before my work shift, just to practice, practice, practice. Give myself feedback. Record myself. Um, so it was it was a lot of um self work. And I thought I think that those books that I was reading, those courses uh, were like my guidance uh, as as I was going through this process. And so it's something that naturally evolves. Right. It's like a snowball. Once you get started, you accumulate all of this knowledge over time by uh, by working, by training, by um, talking to other professionals. Um, in-person interpreters and other remote interpreters and you get to develop this kind of like holistic view of everything Um, so everything kind of comes together but it all started with that desire to learn that curiosity like why does that happen how can I improve that what does this mean so um, a lot of independent uh, work and I wanted to major in um, I was looking at um American colleges to major in interpretation when i was when I was doing yet another major <laughs> change um at uni. and it was too expensive. so I decided to go with the open university because it was remote and it was much more affordable. and um I'm learning English, but I'm learning linguistics and it has nurtured my profession, my 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 job so much i have learned about things like descriptivism prescriptivism how people use language i have learned uh to respect gender um neutral language because now i understand how does it relate to society at large and how do we use english and and why why do we think the way we th- the way we think about our language so it gives me all that really critical thinking skills and and. So I'm really happy where I'm at now academically, I think.
0: That's great. What were the challenges that you encountered uh, when you started going out to actually acquiring jobs uh, that paid you? What were those challenges in obtaining opportunities?
1: So I think um, one of the challenges was that as much as I wanted to be paid fairly, uh, because I'm, a, I'm an interpreter in the Dominican Republic. And I, I knew since the very early on in my career when I w- when I started working, that interpreters in the US were making more money. I also knew that my pay rate was just a fraction, a very minimal fraction of what the agency was making. I was, they were making like 90% of, of everything, and I was making like five, 10%. Um, And I will come across this glass ceiling that I will ask for a high rate and agencies will turn me down. Like, no, no, like that's not the rate we offer to uh, remote interpreters outside of the US. And I even, um, I don't want to get in trouble. I'm going to be very careful with my words, but I had an experience uh, where somebody told me my face, like when I asked that person for a rate that was us standard rate we never told me we never pay interpreters outside of the us that rate we just don't do that but that person knew how valuable i was they kind of wanted to get me promoted actually and it felt so bad like no matter what i do how much i train how many certifications i'll never get that um Reasonable rate. It's always going to be a low rate. Also, another thing is that online, this is a conversation I was having with a colleague. People say, you should never accept low rates. Do not accept them uh, because you are like bringing down the profession for all of us. And I was, and I, I think that places a lot of guilt on the interpreter like, is their fault? I see like. There was not a glass ceiling that just doesn't let us like go up because they they don't want to. They don't want to pay. And, and I think I, I, told, I gave her a tip that you shouldn't say um, you should not accept those rates. You should say you should not be offered those rates because uh, sometimes interpreters who are outside of the United States they have a family. They have children. They are trying to make a living. They are in Latin America, which is a very difficult country to to live in, and I'm, I'm, I'm very difficult. Like all across Latin America, is difficult. So, I think placing so much guilt on those interpreters is is kind of like a bad thing because sometimes it's somebody else taking advantage of them, and they are doing what they can. And even myself, with my education, and my training. And everything, I still will be told in at my face, we just don't pay that to you. so mm-hmm. that's very demoralizing,
0: very and very I, I can see why feeling very undervalued when you're taking all these courses from abroad and being certified in the same way that a us based interpreter is certified. Uh, and yet, it's it's not recognized because of where you live, um, and I can definitely see how that is an incredible challenge. And you're absolutely right. I I can see why. Um, you know, when we say words have power, and and when someone says you shouldn't take that rate, and yet that's the only rate that is being offered. I think when 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 people say that, we're really not thinking about the offshore interpreter, you know, we, we want to create a standard uh, US-based, but the profession is global. Um, and, you know, we, we're setting the standard, yes, but at the same time, not considering those challenges and experiences that the remote or offshore interpreter is experiencing within um, their regions or, you know, the places where they live. In your particular case, you did something that maybe not everyone approaches in terms of if if US interpreters are getting paid this much then I want to do what all US interpreters are doing to get qualified and get certified so that you know their their education or rather their pay matches their education um not not I'm not saying that I don't think everyone that is working offshore necessarily does that But it takes some tenacity and some grit and some determination, I think, to make that decision and and be able to to bring that into reality for you, especially encountering the challenges that you encounter. What would you say, uh, Nanyi, to those that argue that state agencies shouldn't be using state budget dollars to pay for interpreting services outside of the US?
1: In terms of offshoring, I think that when interpreters just like fight each other, like uh, US interpreters versus offshore interpreters, like we don't want you, we're going to uh, fight you, we don't want you here. It's like we are fighting each other interpreters against interpreters, but we are not like uh, punching upwards, right? Like who is the person who is, or, or the institution or the system in place that is actually affecting us all? It's like, the lack of using certified interpreters, uh, always going for the lowest bidder, always having the, the the cheapest person, and it, like I think big agencies are taking advantage of all of us while we are busy here fighting each other over unimportant things like our location. You know, like we are not be focused on what's actually going to solve the problem and what's most important. So we are busy just chasing, you know, something else that is not going to be helpful
0: for any of us. Mm, Crucial. Punching upwards. I like that.
1: And um, another thing that um, I will mention is that as, as you already know, there are lots of interpreters working outside of the U.S., Um, many of them have been working for 20, 30 years remote interpretation. So you get very experienced and talented interpreters that have been doing this for years, working on the phones and video for years. And if if you have done uh, remote interpretation, you know, there is like, there is something, that's something different to in-person. There are technicalities and skills that you have to develop to be successful as a remote interpreter. There, there are a lot of Spanish interpreters, especially in Latin America. The demand for Spanish is higher than any other languages. But what happens if you have a King Wanda or if you have a language of lesser diffusion that just, just do not happen to have an interpreter in person there available in your community? You need to have like an interpreter either In in the U.S., outside the U.S., it doesn't matter. What matters is the skills and the ability and the knowledge of the interpreter more than their location. And that's much more important. And trying to close it to like only U.S. is like telling so professionals outside the U.S. are not professional enough. Um, They are not as valuable as U.S. interpreters because U.S. interpreters are better for because they are in the U.S. Um, And I also think... That, given that like the large percentage of, of of like the demand of interpretation, uh, I, this is something that I don't particularly know the statistics because they are really hard to find. But if we really think about it, uh, beyond what we want, like we only want U.S. interpreters, what about we think about supply supply demand qualifications? certifications, how many of those interpreters are certified, how many of those interpreters can be um, in an in-person setting versus a remote setting. So there are many things that should be considered other than just the location of the interpreter. Because if if you th- if you say, we just don't want people outside of the U.S. to interpret, uh, it's like, uh, that's a different type of discourse. That's a type of discourse where you're saying, we just don't want foreigners, we don't want uh, uh, we don't want people outside of our country because our country is our country and we want to be U.S. centric when we are not considering like the whole picture of, of, of things. I also think um, a lot of remote interpreters when they is outside of the U.S., when they go to like conferences or webinars or even social media online, um, there is this fear of, oh, I don't want them to know that I'm outside of the U.S. It's like, oh, it has to be a secret. Nobody can know. And so I think by it's kind of like in a way we are softly maybe implicating or unintentionally unintentionally or implying that remote interpreters outside the U.S. are not welcome to these spaces that they shouldn't be there and we don't want you here. And that message, I don't think is a message that's going to be helpful helpful down the road because these interpreters um, are, are like sources of information for you to know what's going on with these agencies, um, to know what's uh, the challenges of remote interpretation for somebody who is doing that every single day so they they could be assets to you, for you and your cause. And by not welcoming them, it's like we are segregating and we are creating more um grudges and and like differences and and that's not helpful in any profession at all. So we have to be more welcoming um to those people because they are serving patients um just just like um, like you. And that may encourage them to get certified because, oh, I know I know that I can get certified. I didn't know that. I had no idea I could get certified. I had no idea that I could do a 40-hour course. This agency just hired me uh, random. And I would say, yes, I, I mean, good money. I just want to work and, and that's it, you know? So we have to be more welcoming um, to those people. Um, I definitely don't have a definite answer because it's, it's hard to give you an answer because it's, it, I don't have the data to support that. But in my personal experience, what I can tell you is that where the problem is not interpreters outside the US or inside the US, the problem is that we have, uh, there are lack of proper quality safeguards to hire good interpreters. Um, and we end up with people who do not know what they're doing interpreting in this profession. And I think we should address that first, more than the location thing. Uh, we should address that. How do we make sure that we are, agencies are hiring good interpreters? Because that's the real problem. The problem is not that they're outside. The problem is that they're hiring people who are not qualified to interpret. And that should be their priority. And you get unqualified interpreters in the U.S. and outside the U.S. and everywhere. Uh, I need help. I'm scrambling to find interpreters for our board meeting. We have a staffed Spanish interpreter, but we need Korean, Farsi, and Arabic. Plus, we have a slew of IEP meetings coming up, most of them in exotic languages. I'm calling everywhere.
0: I know what we need. I'm at the perfect translation agency at OCDE's Interpreters and Translators Conference. Certified Interpreting Services. They offer in-person and virtual services. Certified Interpreting Services? Yes. They're professional, warm, and perfect for our diverse district's needs.
1: How do we contact them?
0: Call or email. It's all on their website, cisinterpreters.com.
1: CISinterpreters.com. That's
0: just what we need. I'm contacting them now. Thank you for calling Seraph Interpreting Services. This is Jasmine. Absolutely. I completely agree 100% with that statement. I love the fact that you mentioned that what we should be focusing on is proper quality safeguards that agencies have and should be meeting certain standards to the same caliber that interpreters are required to meet certain standards in order to be deemed qualified to interpret in whichever setting that they're interpreting. And, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, That is more what we should be focusing on, is ensuring that these agencies that are receiving these contracts are abiding by the same qualification standards that the expectation, you know, as the expectation is for our language professionals.
1: Something that I would like to say to people who think that offshoring is a very bad thing for the interpreting profession, let's assume that there was no more offshoring that agencies couldn't offshore interpreters. What could happen to the LEP communities? And let's not consider, for example, that a lot of the current structures for language access that we have now rely heavily on remote interpretation. So we will need to um, hire tons of uh, remote interpreters in the US. Let's not think about how uh, a lot of people need Uh, training to learn how to work in a remote medium and aside from that let's also think about what does that mean to the individual interpreter Uh, do you think because offshoring um, is canceled that the agency is going to suddenly hire better interpreters qualified interpreters that are going to pay the interpreter higher rates or are they going to hire, keep hiring unqualified interpreters in the U.S. who are willing um, to get paid really little and and do the job without really knowing what they are doing, which is currently the case in some cases. It happens in the U.S. So, don't you think that agencies are more likely to do that than improving? the current state of affairs of interpretation. So the problem was not offshoring after all, it was unethical business practices.
0: You know, there is so much to talk about with regards to this topic, um, I I know, and I know that it's going to open doors potentially for conversations for others to join the conversation and be able to, you know, have a bit of a discourse, but you bring up excellent points. I want to bring back the story, though, not so much to the, the global perspective of this issue, but more to your personal Um, story. After all, that is what Brandy Interpreter is about, um, highlighting your story specifically. So you come across all these challenges as an offshore interpreter, but it's not just about creating something for yourself. You touched on this earlier. You actually dove into now creating your own agency, meaning agency as in a company that uh, offers services specifically for language professionals. So in order to create a solution, you have to have come across a a problem, right? So that you identify a problem, therefore create a solution. Interpret is born. And I'd like to get a little bit as to how this concept came to you. Before we get into the fact that you created your own little language, which is, which is amazing. Um, Let's talk about what you aspire with Interpremed. What is its purpose?
1: Um, With Interpremed, uh, I think that a lot of current trainings, they, they, a lot of them lack the practical component because you have to practice a lot of hours. And when I say a lot, it's more than 40 hours, just on consecutive interpretation, to be able to feel confident enough to go to a real session and interpret. And so I want people, uh, what I aspire to do with Interpremed is to create a space where people can go and practice like an interpretation gym, where people can feel safe to practice when they can receive, where they can receive feedback in an environment where they're not going to be like morally attacked because they are not as good in their memory or note-taking because we are very insecure in that regard. So I want to create a space where people can come together and practice and, and learn from each other. Learn they we have interpreters from different countries, UK, New Zealand, US. Um, so it's like a multicultural, multilingual space um, where, where you can learn your interpretation skills. So it gives you um, that. I think a broader perspective on on things other than just consecutive side and simultaneous. Um, And I also want to, I I specifically created Interpremed because I knew that in Latin America, I feel like there are not that many schools in Latin America. Mm -hmm. And if there are, you cannot, um, it's not everybody can afford going to high school, to um, college. And so Interprement is affordable for people who want to become interpreters, but want to make sure they have the skills down pat first, that they know what they're doing before embracing this this new career, before getting certified. Um, I think, yeah, that's that's my purpose with interpretmed, but um, I'm also in the middle of creating something new, uh, which is uh, the, it's called uh, Remote Interpreters in the Americas. And um, that's very brand new. I haven't really advertised it as much, but there are so many specific issues uh, to remote interpretation from providers, from agencies, from interpreters. And I don't think we are addressing those issues enough in our trainings, in our webinars. Uh, we all, uh, I feel like there is an in person US bias, where people assume that just all interpretation is done in the U.S., all interpretation is done in person, which is not true. I remember I gave a training the other day about communication flow management for remote interpreters. In the pre-session, I added like a, a different question that remote interpreter is different to an in-person uh, pre-session. Um, context gathering is, in, is different. Um, listening, uh, technology Uh, positioning is everything is different in remote settings and 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 again is that we have to get very concrete and very specific and really outline exactly what you need to learn just like I did with the note-taking part that oh my god there is not enough note-taking training there is not a specific enough there is no specific enough training to remote interpretation so that's that's kind of what I'm planning to do uh, in the long term I want to also Empower interp- remote interpreters, because like I mentioned, um, you feel very demoralized by agencies telling you like, we don't, we just don't value you. Basically, that's what they're saying. Train you like a number. Providers just treat you like you're not human, like you're a robot. Um, communities treating you like we don't want you there. We don't want you in this profession. So the remote interpreter is left all by, by by themselves. Like, okay, so what do I do now? I don't have any support. I don't have any courses. I don't have any, um, especially for the Latino uh, outside of the U.S. interpreter. And um, I feel like I want to make them see that they can do more, that they deserve more that this is like a bigger game. It's not you in your own little house taking calls remotely. This is something bigger. And so that's kind of my approach now. I'm still in the process of getting it all sorted out, but I, I want to create an association for remote interpreters.
0: Oh, that's what I was going to get at right now is, uh, yeah. what it, what is what exactly is the vision and association. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I think that's that's a huge dream, incredible dream, and you're absolutely right. It's uh, it is about connecting, and if there is one thing that COVID taught us, uh, or at least me, is that the interpreting world isn't as big as we thought it was that, you know, we all are interconnected and we can be interconnected, especially now there is no excuse for it uh, with all the technology that is available. And so uh, you're right. We are part of a bigger picture, but that bigger picture that we thought is unreachable is actually quite reachable and we can connect with one another and help support in the end. I believe the profession itself with the purpose of what, right? Connecting, connecting others to resources through language. Um, So that's an excellent, I mean, I, I can't wait. I'm very much looking forward Mm -hmm. to how that develops. Nangi, as we get to, the closing of today's episode, I'd like to touch on a couple of other things before we conclude today's session. And that is, uh, you talked earlier with regards to creating a, a language that was very much symbols-based and you know, mm-hmm. over 400 characters you're talking about. You've introduced this actually to uh, it, through workshops that you've given. I was part of one of those presentations, by the way, um, and very insightful presentation of course, I knew that it was just a bite size of what you could potentially give out. I believe you're putting something together that's more in depth, uh, you know, a program that that will be more in depth with regards to this. What would you like to share about uh, this particular uh, symbols based you call it interpretation algorithm?
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, the this interpretation algorithm is basically uh, based on the um, Two main ideas. First, the idea that you can write as fast as somebody speaks, even though you know it's not possible. That's kind of like our goal. And second, the idea that you can uh, create mental recordings of what people say, as if you had like a real recorder in your mind, but you're doing it the analog way using your brain. So the idea is to create something standardized that you can use in each and every encounter and um i have received um gotten some pushback from people telling me like oh i don't want to learn symbols uh they are it takes too long or oh if 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 mean interpretation was just taking notes that would be easy but i i never say that interpretation was just taking notes mm. i i mean it's a big part of interpretation but it's not everything and so people are surprised when they see that that, that the amount of effort and time and practice that it requires because it is like learning a new language but especially this is particularly useful for remote interpreters because especially over the phone and video remote it's inter note taking is so um, crucial and so I believe that so many people struggle with the same thing for, for the whole time of their careers. Like I've, I've had people in my class for, I've been an interpreter for 30 years. And this is the first time I, ca- I come across such a helpful course for note-taking. So interpreters with really lo- long time in the field still struggle with memory retention and note-taking. And it shouldn't be that way. Um, I think just like ethics, just like cultural um, uh, uh, competency, just like anything, you need to, spend time studying it, just like no taking. No taking is not just like a two-hour thing that you do for a little bit and then it's done. It's more like a long-term process that you continuously develop. That mindset, it's something that that we need um, for interpreters to actually motivate themselves to go ahead and 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 develop a system. And I every time I hear the advice, oh, you have to do what works for you. You have to create your own system. It just it makes me cringe so hard, makes me so sad because that interpreter then is going to try to reinvent the wheel on their own when there is already a system and so like a framework that you can use and you can adapt it but there is something out there for you already. We don't have to create a whole new standards of practice when the standards of practice are already there. They may not be complete. We can add some things, but this is your framework, you know?
0: Nanyi, if you had the opportunity to leave advice for the up-and-coming new language professional or the new generation of language professionals, what would that advice be? Considering these specific topics that you've given us today, rich in knowledge, rich in experience, what would you share with upcoming language professionals?
1: Well, uh, first, the most simple advice is develop a note-taking system, especially if you work as a remote interpreter. Don't wait to like figure things out on your own or see how it goes. It's just like learning English or learning your other language. You need to have it. You need it. Um, and, and try from the very early in your career to set the a good foundation for memory retention and note-taking so it doesn't come back in the future and, and, and limit your ability to um, perform. Uh, that's, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is for remote interpreters. I think it's really important for remote interpreters to try to see, especially outside of the U.S., to try to see their job more than something that they're doing to pay their bills as a profession that is in urgent need of development, a profession that needs your help. You need to learn to advocate for yourself, to advocate for the patients that you serve, educate yourself in language access, laws and regulations, educate yourself on how to make remote interpreting sessions a little bit more human more empathetic, because that's, there is a lot of that lacking in remote interpretation, empathy towards the, the people we are working with. And also um, try to do your own bit, you know, because we all have, um, uh, I think that interpreters outside of the U.S., um, they have this mindset of, oh, uh, they'll never pay me that rate. this This is just a glass ceiling that I cannot break. I'm sorry, I cannot do anything about it. It's beyond my this defeated attitude. Um, I want you to have a positive attitude, a growth attitude. There are a lot of jobs out there. There is enough jobs for everybody. The profession is continuously growing. And in-person interpreters are not your enemies. U.S. interpreters are not your enemies. We are all in the same boat. And... um, you are part of, you are, even though you are remote, you are at that moment in time, you are part of the session. You are helping the provider give treatment to a patient who is in pain, who needs your help. So you are doing something very, very valuable, even if everybody or things around you do not make you see it that way. You have to kind of look for your own um, path and, and try to see yourself in the broader scheme of things. Yeah, you are an important piece, like in the whole um, uh, healthcare delivery system. So think about yourself that way. And I think that opens the doors to to a lot of possibilities. When you start seeing yourself um, um, like as as you really are and not as an agency or An interpreter uh, that doesn't like uh, uh, offshore interpreters sees you, sees yourself differently. So that's that would be my advice.
0: That's great. Would you add anything with regards to technology and its use of technology to support you as a remote interpreter uh, and in the profession?
1: Yes, I will add technology. I think the thing that technology is, is tricky for everybody But um, a a good tip would be get a good microphone, (laughs) get a good headset, um, get a good desktop, get a good chair, because we're going to spend lots of hours um, uh, using this desk. And, And you want to make sure that you are healthy, that you're walking, you know, drinking water It's just you can just you can spend a whole day sitting on the chair so. Yeah,
0: um, get a good chiropractor.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think I actually want to get my ears checked because I, I, I'm i not sure if I have any kind of like uh, hearing issues uh, because I ch- I just want to double check that everything is okay in, in that regard. And also um, don't be scared of learning how to use Zoom or learning how to change the sound settings or, on your computer. Get somebody to help you, maybe attend a course. Because you're always going to face technical issues. And so you want to be prepared instead of being like uh, panicking, like, oh my God, what do I do now? I don't even know how to, uh, where is, how to change my microphone. I don't know which one. So yeah, getting familiar, getting a good computer, uh, you know, getting a good computer long-term, a gamer computer
0: is going to be really helpful too. Mm, There's a good one that we haven't heard, a gamer computer. Yeah. As we have this conversation and uh, I think about the big agencies, the agencies that are in support of the profession and its standards that are there to help guide um, other bigger agencies with regards to to uh, professionalizing and standards of practice and all of that. Is there anything you would like to say? Any call to action you would like to say to the associations that represent the language professionals?
1: Oh, yes. Um, I would like to say that we have to think beyond our current codes of ethics and standards of practice. Um, and I think we have to be, we have to broaden our, our perspective of what, what the interpreter does in a session. Because I feel that the current standards and codes of ethics are very limiting. Um, um, not ambig- ambiguous not specific enough and if this is like a little like it's something like the bible of, inter- of that we guide ourselves uh, with it should be really more specific and and also it should include i think a more uh, how does this apply to remote interpretation right how does this especially when it comes to uh reporting and advocating As a remote interpreter, I sometimes I witness providers who do things that are really, really wrong uh, with patients. And what can I do? I can only talk to the agency. And do I know whether the agency is going to take action? Well, that depends on the supervisor. So we are... I cannot take action uh, by myself. Like I cannot file a report to the Department of Health and Human Services or the Joint Commission or whoever, because I don't have the information that I need. I don't know the address, the name, the, the all the details that I need to make a report. And um, the advocate role is really like uh, tricky, uh, and it's still, we're still developing it. But I believe that moving forward. We have to be mindful of how does these standards and codes of ethics apply to our remote interpreter, because it's oftentimes a blind spot. Mm. And and, and something that I was thinking at uh, recently is that sometimes our remote interpreter is remote, not only because they're outside of the U.S. Maybe they have a disability or a health issue that doesn't allow them to go in person maybe they cannot uh, go outside that often because they have a weak immune system and they cannot expose themselves like there are many different reasons why a person will work remotely and we, we just assume no everything should be done in person that's the golden standard we, we only use remote interpretation for like um, for overflow or when an in-person interpreter is not available because as you know that's not the case anymore Uh, we are using remote interpretation a lot of the times so how can we make sessions be easier go smoother for everybody when they happen because there is in-person interpretation has its place for sure in very specific situations in-person interpretation is very very ideal but then there are some other situations in which remote interpretation happens. And even, even if it is just 1% or just a little, it takes place. There are like thousands of people being served uh, with, uh, through remote interpretation services. So how are we serving these people? What standards do we have? How do what we have now applies to, to these uh, remote um, sessions? Especially if they're outside of the U.S., what happens with that? What does that mean? How can we... so? Yeah, that's that would be what I would like to say to the these associations to really see the profession as it is now, not as we would like it to be mm-hmm. right as it is now and try to solve problems now. So we can be like we want it to be instead of like pretending that it's not there and we don't want it and we're going to look away. And that's not that's not going to solve the problem, you know?
0: Yeah. Getting ahead by following how the profession is evolving and getting in front of those who may potentially be creating their own internal quote unquote standards and who may not necessarily have the profession or the professional at heart. I mean the world is evolving, technology is evolving, the profession is evolving, and so we definitely have to be looking at it from that lens. I completely agree. Uh lastly, Yi. Where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do?
1: Okay, so um my main uh, social media is on interpreter, interpret.com. You search on, on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, you can find interpret and you will find me. <laughs> you will eventually that that path will lead you to me, or you can also add me on Facebook, like I'm everywhere. I'm uh, my um instagram and twitter account is at int nanji mateo i believe well you see i don't even use it that much i use the interpreter account <laughs> a lot
0: more <laughs> I'll make sure to link all of these uh, links in the show notes for uh, everyone to be able to connect with you if they so choose. In the meantime, Nanyi, I very much appreciate your time. I knew from the beginning when you were recommended as a potential guest that this topic was going to be uh, a great topic, that you were going to be able to share some of those key insights that potentially we're not thinking about because we, we, meaning uh, U.S.-based interpreters, aren't in your shoes, and we've not experienced what you've experienced. And I personally appreciate the fact that you have done your due diligence, that you have trained, and you've become certified in everything that you can become certified to really truly become the embodiment of what we're looking for in language professionals out in the field. And so I thank you for that on behalf of the profession. I am but a small part of it, obviously not anything important, but I think that when we talk the talk, we have to be able to demonstrate that you know we are in fact truly invested. And I think you've done that. And the fact that you take on these platforms and openly discuss a topic that maybe others aren't very open to discussing because of fear of attack or of, you know, fear of whatever that may be. Um, And you're openly discussing this situation or this topic. So I want to thank you once again for the opportunity to share your story on this platform. And I hope that it opens up the door to very enriching and enlightening discussions in the very near future for you and for other remote interpreters that are following your footsteps. Thank you again for the opportunity.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Mireya. Thank you for having me and thank you for, um, for listening.
0: Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the connect with me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.